Two weeks ago when I began this series, I shared with you how that Charles Dickens was asked about what appeared to be biblical themes in Christmas Carol. And his answer was, I've always strived in my writings to venerate the lessons and the person of our Savior. And so clearly, according to Dickens himself, there were scriptural themes in a Christmas Carol. And so today, we're going to talk about how that he was haunted by the ghost of Christmas past. And we're going to shorten that up a little bit because you and I can go through the same thing. Not a real ghost because such doesn't exist, but it's possible for us to be haunted by our past. What does it mean to be haunted? If you're watching, you know, if you're watching a horror flick and there's a haunting going on, pretty simply there are a couple of factors that go into haunting. Here's the first one. Something that should be dead seems to have a life that goes on. And the second one is there's a harassing quality. You know, if you, if you see the movie, there's somebody all alone in the house and nobody else should be there, but there's the sense of a presence an evil presence, a painful presence, a threatening presence, something dead that, should, that seems to have a life of its own and then something that continues to harass. Well, you and I know there's no such thing as zombies or the undead or ghosts. That's all figments of people's imaginations. But there is something in our life that tends to function that way. It should be dead. It seems to have a life of its own, and it's got a harassing quality to it. And what I'm talking about is the past. The past should be dead, but it seems to live on. Some of us today, if not all of us today, to some extent, have past problems, past hurts, past decisions, past mistakes that seem to live on and threaten today's relationships, maybe even threaten our future. And so we want to talk about that for just a few moments. And in Charles Dickens' novella, what happens is Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas past, and the past is played out for Scrooge. He gets an opportunity to see his life. It's kind of the reverse, if you think about it, to the Frank Capra movie from 1946 with Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. Because when Jimmy Stewart goes back over his past, he gets to look at some good things that he did that he forgot about. Scrooge, on the other hand, is taken back into the past to see his life and the painful mistakes that he made and even the pain that others created for him, and he understands why he's haunted by the past. Now, what Dickens intends in this book is for the past to be a teaching moment for Scrooge. And that's what you and I need to feel today. When we think about our past, it, it can be a teaching moment. And, and I want to show you three things very quickly that Scrooge learns about the past. These are all pretty obvious, and we won't spend much time on them today because, one, they're not a lot of fun. But still, let, let's see what Scrooge learns about his past and what you and I learn about our past. And here's the first one. The past is dead. It can't change. If you've lived for any length of time and you've made serious mistakes or you've done things that are wrong in your life, Chances are you fantasize about being, going, about, about being able to go back into that point in time before you did what was wrong and to have a different outcome. But you and I know that that can't happen. Um, chances are, if you've lived, again, any length of time, there's been some event in, in, in the world, in world history or national history that it's very strong in your memory. For many of us, it'll be 9-11. You can remember where you were on that Tuesday morning when you, when you, when you saw the images of the planes flying into the building. And, and that'll be, it, you know, if those of you who are younger, that's probably going to be the seminal moment in your life that you're going to look back on and say, that was the worst memory I have, nationally speaking. A few of you are old enough to remember Pearl Harbor, but I'm a baby boomer. And so for me, that moment in time is the Kennedy assassination. I was seven years old. I was in second grade. And exacerbating that was I was in Fort Worth, Texas, 30 miles away from where the president was assassinated. I can't get that out of me. I mean, it's just part of my fabric. I remember that Thursday night in the back seat of my parents' car as dad was driving down 
downtown Fort Worth on I-35, I saw the, the buildings, the, sky, the skyline lit of Fort Worth. And I remember asking him why that was, because in Fort Worth, they would always light the skyline on the night of Thanksgiving to signify the Christmas season was beginning. But this was the 21st of November, and it was before that. And I still remember Dad saying to me, I can almost call that memory back in time, Dad said, the president's in town tonight. And then we know the tragedy that happened in Dallas the next day. Well, we just marked the 51st anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. All the documentaries are on television. I watched them again. How many times have I watched the Zapruder film, which is the amateur photography of, of Kennedy's assassination, and the other documentary films of him walking down uh, the, the stairwell of the plane, being received, getting into the black limousine, and, and going through town. It's like if you go back and look at that video in time, it's like he's alive again. But no matter how many times I watch that video, I know how it's going to end. It doesn't change. And for you and me, that's what happens when we look back in our lives. We would like to watch the video again. We can remember what it was like before it happened. But it's always the same. It always ends the same. And that's how it is with the past. The past is unchangeable. And, and I won't spend very long at all on the second one because it really is painful. And that is the Scrooge learns the past is worse than he thinks it is. You know, you and I could think that we're doing pretty well today. Like Scrooge, at the beginning of Christmas Carol in the counting house, he thinks everything is fine. He doesn't see anything wrong with the way, the way he's living. But when he goes back into the past and begins to examine piece by piece the mistakes that he made and the pain that others have created for him, Scrooge realizes the past is worse than he thinks it is. We tend to give ourselves passes. We tend to block out mistakes, bad decisions that we've made. But in Scripture, we learn just how thorough God is in evaluating our lives. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says, let me tell you something. Every one of these careless words, let me, let me read that. Every one of these careless words is going to come back to haunt you. There will be a time of reckoning. My goodness, if God gets so thorough that he goes into the words we've spoken and not just profane words or lying words, but just careless words, my goodness, who could stand up under that kind of scrutiny? So I won't spend any more time there. It's just if we were to be honest about our past, it's worse than we think it is. You could say, well, Mark, I don't think my past is so bad. But I promise you, if they started showing my life or your life on these monitors and everything, we, we would have to say, yeah, it's even worse than I think it is. The third reality, the third thing that Scrooge learns about the past is the past tells the story of where we are today. And you, I don't count so much anymore, but back in the years when I used to do a lot of counseling, I would have people come in and they would tell me about their life story. And then they would tell me, or they would say to me, I don't understand why I'm where I am today. I don't understand why this has happened to me. And they don't realize that what they painted for me was a picture of a journey that led exactly to the destination where they are. Where you and I are today is in large part the product of decisions and choices that we made yesterday and bad choices that others have made that affect us. But well, that's as far as we need to go with that because it would be a really depressing morning if we just talked about our past and why it's painful. We're haunted by our past. We have a sense that it lives on. And, and, and so what can we do about it? Well, let me give you this statement before I give you the two things that we'll talk about today. The two things I'm going to recommend that you do with your past sound so simple that you could walk away from today's talk and say, I really don't think I got a whole lot out of that because it just sounded too simple. Here's the thing I want to say to you. These two things sound simple, but they must be really difficult 
because very few people actually do these two things. Well, let's, let me throw them out there. You consider them and pray about them and think about them. Here's the first thing I would recommend that you do with your past, and that is this. Bring it to God. Bring it to God. Because here's the thing. You can't do anything with your past. I remember back in the 2008 presidential election, in the, it was in those early days, you know, when the parties have about 10 or 12 candidates, and they were all in this, they were all, it's like a talk show, really, but they were all debating. And I don't remember which candidate it was, but one of them was waxing particularly eloquent, and he said, we're going to change history. Well, you can do a lot of things, but you can't change history. You can change the future, but you can't change history. But I do think there's several things. I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but I do think there's several things that we try to do to mitigate the past. One of them is guilt. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but guilt is sort of an emotional and spiritual mechanism to somehow mitigate the past. If I can feel bad about it, then God will see me feeling bad, and maybe that will undo the harm that I've done. Or rationalization. I had a reason to make a dumb choice. And I think there are many people who carry anger today, but the anger they carry is just an attempt to deal with the past. And most of us try this one. We'll just hide it. Maybe if we hide it, maybe we stick it in the back of the closet. Maybe we stick it in a drawer somewhere. Nobody will ever discover what we've done. This is a hokey story, but it's true. I remember when I was a kid growing up, this back in the days when we wore suits to church, my parents bought me a suit. And my dad loved it. Now, you got to realize, I grew up in the mid to late 60s, and so the styles were different. It was one of those skinny suits with those stovepipe legs, and they were, they were bright colors back in the day. This was like in the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were, you know, in their heyday. This suit was copper. I mean, when the light shined down this suit, it lit up Fort Worth. And I don't know why, but it just, my dad really liked it. He'd say, you're going to wear the suit to church today. Oh, yeah. Well, we went to one of those potluck dinners that small churches have, and I dumped a whole plate full of pie into that suit. And, I mean, just ruined it. I mean, it was smeared everywhere. It's probably cherry pie. That's my favorite. And so I, I didn't want to tell my dad that I'd ruined his favorite suit, so I stuck it in the back of the closet. So he'd ask me from time to time, you going to wear the suit? No, I'm not going to wear the suit. Don't wear something different. But I kept being afraid he was going to discover how I'd ruined his favorite suit, so I stuck it in a drawer now it's all crumpled up in the back of the door. Dad would ask me, I would lie about it. Well, I just don't think I should wear it today. Finally, after months of lying to Dad about the suit, I got out my courage and I just pulled that wadded up suit out of the drawer and I brought it to Dad. And I said, Dad, I got to be honest with you. I ruined this suit. We may as well throw it away. And Dad said, Are you kidding? And I didn't know about dry cleaning. <laughs> Dad said, Mark, that's not a problem. Took it to the dry cleaners three days later, it looked brand new. Now, you know, you and I chuckle about that old story from my past, but the thing about this is a whole bunch of us here today, maybe right here in this room, we got stuff that we've stuffed in the back of the closet in the drawer, stuff from our past that haunts us. If we would just bring it to our Heavenly Father, He would know what to do with it. We can't undo it. We can't change it. I mean, we can feel angry about it. We can rationalize it. We can feel guilty about it. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be there. Bring it to the Father. He will know where to take it. In the book of Isaiah chapter 1, the Bible says, this is God speaking. God says, come now. Let's reason together. The Hebrew word reason together means settle this. God says, let's settle. Let's not leave this hanging out there. By the way, God never says come tomorrow. You know, somebody can say, well, Mark, I got some stuff going on in my life, and, 
you know, I'm in a relationship and I'm kind of doing some things I know are not right. I'll, I'll just like get that done and then about six weeks from now I'll come to God. God never says come tomorrow. God never says he'll be open for business tomorrow. He says come now. Come now. Let's settle this. Read this with me. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Now, guys, here's what you and I need to understand. That's about pasts. Normally, when God talks about sin, that means wrongdoing or things that are wrong. He mentions it, he refers to it as dirty. But notice here it's referred to as dye, crimson, or scarlet. If you have white fabric, if you have linen fabric, the two colors, you're not going to be able to get out of that back in the day, 700 years before Jesus was born. The two days, the two colors you have no hope of getting out of fabric are scarlet and crimson. They're the strongest dyes there were. And yet God is saying, look, even though you are stained as stark as scarlet or crimson, read it again. They shall be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. I try to preach this over and over to you, and I don't think I can ever preach it enough. When you open the pages of the Bible, you find people who are sinners. But the people who will bring their sin to God, it's remarkable how God doesn't bring it up again. In fact, it is so remarkable how differently God treats people, even though they may deserve all kinds of pain in their lives because of the actions they've taken. If they bring that past to God, it's so wonderful how God treats them with blessing and grace. On the most important morning of history, when Jesus walked out of his grave, who did he choose to appear to first? Read with me. When Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Many people believe she had been a prostitute. And yet Jesus chose to appear to her first. Why? Because she, she had changed. She had brought it to him. Brought her past. Some of you are Bible students, and you like to study your Bible. If, if you do, the moment I mention Hebrews 11, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Hebrews 11, that chapter is about the heroes of faith. These are about people, men and women, who had extraordinary faith. It's like walking through the Hall of Fame. But look at who's on the list. Abraham, he lied. Moses committed murder. David took another man's wife and had her husband killed. Jacob cheated his brother. Samuel did a horrible job of raising his kids. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson had a problem with Philistine women. Go up and down the list and you'll find people with feet of clay who had a lot of problems in their past. But the thing about it was they brought their past to God and God just saw them for the grace that he put into their lives. Come now, God says. Bring your past to him. I, I notice this when I read scripture, that God is very honest about the sins and the flaws of the people. But once they bring it to him, it seems that God never brings it up again. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because in Hebrews 10, verse 17, the Bible says, There's sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now think about that. God is saying, the things you've done wrong, he will blot it out from his memory. Let's talk for a moment. Some of you have been a Christian or a Christ follower for a good while. And you have, sort of a, you have sort of a conflicting, dichotomous thing going on in your mind. On one hand, you know theologically that God says that he no longer treats you as guilty if you brought your past to him, and yet you still feel guilty. Why is that? Why do you think that is? When we know that we have the promises of God, that he forgives us and washes away our sin, why do you think we're still haunted by our past? Well, I could give you some over-the-counter answers and guesses. I think part of it could just be guilt. Some of it could be we've had bad experience with religion. Some of us have a skewed view of justice or God. 
But this weekend, I'm saying something for the first time, and I really believe this is our problem. And, and, and just think with me for a moment. The reason why many of us know God's promises to forgive us, and yet we still struggle with guilt, is we fail to understand that that's the result of a transaction. If we understood it was part of a transaction, then we would know how we're free. You're doing Christmas shopping, right? You go, you go buy a present. You put the money on the table or a card on the table. You get a receipt. Let me ask you a question. When you walk out of that store, do you feel guilty that somebody's going to come find you and arrest you? No. A transaction has taken place. You got a receipt. The person who's in charge, who's in charge of the buying process has said you're free to go. You're not, you're not scared that helicopters are going to surround the mall and, and you know, they're going to come arrest you unless you're not in a good place emotionally and psychologically. But, but, but you're not worried about it because a transaction has taken place. And, and you know what? Here's the thing. It's not that you think, well, I'm really a nice person. That's why they're not coming to get me. Or I think I'm pretty good. Or, you know, a transaction has taken place. And guys, that's the thing. See, here's the thing. I think a lot of us don't feel forgiven because we think that we're forgiven because God loves us. And by extension, that's true, but it's not specifically why we're forgiven. Because, see, here's the problem with thinking I'm forgiven because God loves me. On one hand, we look at God's love, and then we look at our sin. And we think about all the many times we've asked God to forgive us and gone back and done the same, same dumb thing again. And it's like, well, I just don't know that God's love can continue to cover me when I've done all these things that are wrong. We're thinking wrong. See, here's the thing. Imagine you're, imagine you're sitting at this table, and you're here, and God is there. And on the table is the invoice for all the sins you've ever committed. How are you going to pay that invoice? You're going to pay it from being a nice person? Good luck with that one. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes, and we know how thorough God is. He even gets down to idle words. How are you going to pay for that? Well, I'm going to join a church. Mm -hmm. Nice thing, but sure won't pay the invoice. You say, well, I'll be baptized. That's a good thing, too, but that won't pay the invoice. You say, well, I'm going to uh, go to Tibet and live in a monastery. Well, you, you wear orange, but you know, it's not going to pay the invoice. See, that's the problem. We sit across from the table with God on one side and we're on the other side. There's a big invoice and it's stacked up really high and we don't know how we're going to pay for this. But imagine a third chair coming up to the table and now Jesus Christ is there. And on top of that invoice, he brings payment and the payment happens to be his blood. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Christ comes along and says, I offer a payment. Here's the thing. Your sins and my sins are huge. They're powerful. But nothing is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he lays that on the table, we are free to go. This happens to me every once in a while. I'm honored and humble when it happens. Maybe I'll not be at a restaurant eating. And I'll be waiting for the server to bring check. And after a few moments, the server will come over and smile at me and say, Sir, uh, someone here wants to remain anonymous, but they just want you to know they love you and they've, they've paid your check. Now, at that moment, I, I feel kind of, it's an, it's an interesting feeling. Because I ate the food. I deserve the pay. Now, am, am I afraid when Morales and I get up and walk out that they're going to come get me for walking on a check? No, because the person in charge of my table told me a transaction had taken place, 
and I was now free to go. Ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly, if you're holding a Bible in your lap, that is exactly what you have. The person in charge of your table, God Almighty, has told you that someone has come and paid your check, and you are now free to go. We are not free from guilt in the past because we're nice people, because we look nice, because we've joined a church, and because we're a particular denomination. We are free to go because a transaction has taken place, and Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. When you have that, then you, you're free. Now, let, let me show you a verse. Let me show you a verse. Because there's so many verses that talk about the blood of Christ paying for our sins. But watch this one. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? You know, when I preach this every once in a while, you know, someone watching on television or internet will say, well, I just think if you tell people that they're forgiven of their sins, that they're going to just take a loose view toward God. No, no, that's not, first of all, it doesn't really matter. The truth is the truth. But ultimately, what you and I understand, need to understand is that God frees us from our sins for a reason, so that we can worship Him. If you come in here worried about what a sinner you are, you're not going to worship Him with joy. But if you come in here and you say, hey, I am free from my sin, I'm free from my past, because Jesus Christ has come to the table and paid for my sins, there's something about that that makes us want to worship him. And I'll tell you something else. That's what makes us want to live a godly life. Not because we're scared something's going to happen to us if we don't. So what do you do with your past? Bring it to God. Number two, and this is going to sound simplistic, but work with me for a moment. And I want to just introduce this by, with another concept. Some of you are here today and you're saying, Mark, my problem with the past is, sure, I've done some things that are wrong, but it's, it's not just that. Other people have done things to hurt me. There are things people have done to me in my past, and I, I have a hard time dealing with that. Okay, here's the second thing. After you bring your past to God, leave it with him. Leave it with him. At my house, on my refrigerator, in the kitchen, there's a scripture verse little card, the scripture verse. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. I see it often because I go to the refrigerator a lot. <laughs> a lot of you love this verse. You have it in your house. You have it in jewelry. For some of you, it's your life verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in the future. One of my issues with that verse is a lot of people don't take time to, to know what it's all about. They just sort of take it out of context. So what I want to do right now is I want to tell you what this verse says. This verse was given to people who were living in captivity. These were Jewish people who were in Babylon. And they were there because they had done things wrong. They were there because others had done things wrong. It was what it was. They were in Babylon. They were in captivity. And God, if you, if you know Jeremiah, this, this chapter, Jeremiah 29, God has just said to them, get on with life. Because they were, they were in Babylon just waiting to be able to go home again. And God said, hey, you're going to be here. I mean, every once in a while, life just puts you in Babylon. You're in a place where you don't want to be, and you're waiting to get out of it. And God is just saying, no, you're not going to get out of this. God is saying, get on with life. Get married. Raise kids. Help them get married. Build houses. Plant vineyards. Move on. And, and that's when we get Jeremiah 29, 11. And if, and if you're here today and you've been victimized by the past and you just heard me say, move on, get on with life, you could say, well, that's not a very kind thing for someone to say. And that's why God gave us Jeremiah 29, 11. The first word of that verse is for. 
In other words, God is saying, get on with life because. Because of what? Because God says, I know the plans I have for you. Now I want to pull two Hebrew words out of there real fast, and then we'll be through in just a few moments. The first word I want to pull out is the word know. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Well, it's not necessarily the normal Hebrew word for know. It means to know by seeing. There are things I know, but I've never seen. I just know because enough evidence has been presented to me that it's risen to the level of sufficiency for proof. But I'll tell you something. When you know something from seeing, you know, you can be in a discussion or a disagreement with somebody and they're challenging what you're saying. And you say, look, I know. I've seen it. It takes it to a whole new level. But what is God saying he's seen? What does he know by seeing? Our future. Hey, I'm like you. I've got all these electronic devices, you know, smartphones, pads, you know, all this stuff that gives us information. Our cars are filled with computers to give us information. But with all the electronic devices and all the sophistication, you realize there's not one single device that can tell us what's going to happen five minutes from now? The future belongs to God. And God says, I've seen your future. I know what's there. I know your future. Every time I think about this, I think about my dad. My dad passed away a year and a half ago. Miss him a lot. When I was a kid growing up, my parents loved Christmas. I mean, they were really into Christmas. And they would start celebrating it in November. And up would go the tree, and my parents would have bought the presents six months before. And all the presents would be out there at one time. And, I'd, of course, I'd find the ones with my name on I'd shake it. I'd try to guess what was in it. I don't really know how this thing happened in our family, but sort of this, this sort of deal happened. I can't even remember. It's probably before the meter of my memory started running. But the deal kind of was if I could guess what the present was, I could open it. That's a pretty cool deal. So I would start working my mom and dad to find out what was in there. And now my mom, my mom would just shut me down. She, you know, she just, she didn't want to play the game. And she'd just say, don't ask me. Just don't ask me. She'd poke her face. My dad was something else. My dad had some ambivalence about the whole process. Because for one thing, he knew what he had bought me. I have a hunch he had a little ADD in him himself. And he really wanted me to know what was in there because he was so excited. He had a hard time waiting to show me what he bought for me. But on the other hand, he wanted me to wait till Christmas, I'm sure, for my mom's sake. So he was the weak link in the chain. <laughs> and I would work him. So I, I would just start asking questions. And I'd throw in a couple of clunker questions I knew wouldn't be. I just want to get him in the rhythm of answering my questions, you know. And, but then I'd start getting warm. And I could still, I could still see there'd be a little grin around the corner of his face. You know, corner. He'd try to disguise it, but he was starting to grin. I knew I had him, and I'd just sort of go in for the kill. And then when I got it, he'd turn away and look away from me, and he'd be laughing. <laughs> a few seconds later, I'd be opening my present. <laughs> I want to tell you something. If you could see your heavenly father's face, you would see that smile around the corners of his mouth. Because he's saying, I know what I've got wrapped up for you. I've seen it. I've seen it. See, my dad knew because he had seen what was in there. Paper covered it up and kept me from seeing, but he knew. And God says, I know the plans I have for you. Now, the second word I want to pull out is the word plans. Because there are some of you here today who are saying, Mark, I just get the feeling you're blowing sunshine at me. 
And I, I, I feel that too. And let me tell you something I've said, and maybe some of you have said. I've had stuff happen in my life, and I have said, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what any preacher says. I don't care about anything. There's no way this can be good. You ever say that? There's no way this can be good. And you're right. God doesn't say everything that happens to us is good. The word plans there is the word that we get our word machinations from or engineering. God says, I've already seen the engineering of your future. Now, what's engineering? Engineering tells us how things work together. It tells us how systems work. It tells us about how, how the gears and, and things fit together. God is saying, I know I've seen your future. I know the engineering. He's not saying that everything that happens is good. I mean, a lot of things that happen, these poor people living in Babylon have been really bad. God doesn't say everything is good. He just says this. This is in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for good to those who love him. I don't have time today to tell you the story. Some of you have heard me tell these through the years, but I will tell you this. The best things in my life have come out of the worst things in my life. I do not understand that. There, there are moments I don't want to live again. There, if, you, if you put Bill Gates' checkbook on this table and said, I'll write you any size check, if you'll just live through it again, I'd say, not a chance. Because they were bad things and painful things. But as I look back on that, so many good things came out of those things. That's just God saying, I know the plans for you. I know the engineering. I've seen it. I know how it works together. This is a really old story. I read it in a short story years ago. I don't even know where I read it. I don't know who wrote it. And you'll tell quickly this is a story from antiquity. But back in the day, 150 years or so ago, women prized very special, delicate, delicately designed, intricately designed, artistically designed handkerchiefs. That was sort of the ultimate accessory that a woman of, of stature would carry. And some of them were quite beautiful and ornate with, with handcrafted lace. And a woman had such a, a, a handkerchief, a beautiful white handkerchief with magnificent lace. And it was a cherished possession of hers. And unfortunately, she happened to get a drop of India ink on her handkerchief, ruining it. I should have told you she lived down the street from an artist, a very successful artist whom she would visit occasionally. And she happened to walk to his house and show him the dreaded handkerchief, now ruined, now worthless. And it was pouring out her heart, kind of crying about the handkerchief that she had ruined. And he said to her, um, could I have that? And she said, well, it's worthless. Why would you want it? And he said, well, could I, could I have it, please? And she said, sure. So she left him the handkerchief. The next day he called for her. And when she came to his house, she discovered that, that the artist taking India ink had started from the point of the ink drop and had worked out from it and created a magnificent design making the handkerchief worth far much more than it had been at the beginning. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that is what God does with our life. Because we present to him a life, a life, a precious life that's very important to him. And we drop the ink and we, we feel like it's ruined. But we bring it to him. And he starts even with the, the work of others, the work of ourselves that's not good. And he creates a design and he makes it what he wants it to be. So what do you do with your past? You bring it to him. Stop the rationalization. Stop the guilt. Stop the anger. 
a transaction has been made, you bring it to him. And whether you've done something wrong or somebody else has done something wrong, you leave it with him because he is able, and I promise you, he is able to redeem the worst decisions of your life. Not that any of us should make them in a cavalier fashion. But he is able to take the worst decisions of your life. He is able to take the worst things that people have done to you. Not saying that they're good, and certainly those people will deal with their own guilt and sin before God. But God can take the worst things that have happened to you, and he can redeem them and turn them and make them for your good. May God help us not to be haunted by the past. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've taught us today in your word. May we receive it. May it become very real to us. And may this be the ending of the haunting that so many of us have experienced. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Still pray with me for a moment. You could be here today and you say, Mark, I just never really have understood until today how that my sins have been paid for. Well, that's true. Religion won't help you. Being a good person won't help you. Only receiving the gift that Jesus gives because he paid for it with his blood. And scripture tells us this, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's only one way to receive a gift and that's to reach out and accept it. And God has already made a way for you to be forgiven. God has made a way for you to leave your past forever in, in the past. And that's what Christ, through what Christ has done for you. And all God is looking for from you is just a willingness to embrace that gift, to accept it, to believe. That's the word the Bible uses over and over, to believe. And if you're willing to do that today, God is so willing to forgive you and make you his child. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but they're words that reach out to God. And I'm going to pray it slowly because the important thing is that you own these words and that you mean them. So I want you to think about them and you can decide whether you want to say them to God or not. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a flawed and broken sinner. And I'm guilty of many sins. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe your son Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe his blood was an accepted currency in your sight. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. And accordingly, I accept him as my Savior and King. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for freeing me from my past. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, that was quick. And you can say, Mark, I'm not sure what happened to me. So I've got a gift for you. I know we're congested today, but take a few moments to get this. It's a DVD and a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is go back to guest services right out in the middle of the lobby, the little, back, little one back by the coffee shop. Just say, I pray with Mark. Nobody will hassle you, stalk you. They just want to give you this. Thanks for being here. Next weekend, it's Bah Humbug. <laughs>